Good evening, ladies. I'm so excited to be here tonight. This is something that God's had in my heart for a long time to do, and it's just really fun to to see how he works in all the details and making things happen. So I'm Amy Wilkins, and for almost nine years, I've been the wife of a very sweet man, Ben Wilkins, and together we have five amazing blessings, the fifth of which we get to meet in September. So the months have been interesting over the past couple of months, Uh, just figuring out how to, well, not figuring out, I've done it a couple of times, but (laughs) be a mom and be sick and be sleepy and prepare for Bible studies. It's been fun. Um, So when I got this teaching assignment, I was like, is there a mistake? How did I end up with the climax of the story? This is so exciting. Esther 6 through 8 is the reason I have always loved the story of Esther. It is the climax of God's really good story that he wrote. And I love stories because I come from a family who loves telling stories. My grandmother was a storyteller. My dad's a storyteller. I love telling stories. My kids love stories. Who doesn't love a good story? Well, this is a good story. Um, on occasion, we get an t- opportunity to introduce our kids to some of our favorite old classic movies. We'll talk it up for days and be like, oh, this was one of mommy's favorite movies growing up. This is such a good story. And we'll put it in. For example, Swiss Family Robinson. We put the movie in, and inevitably, there's a shipwreck, of course, in the very beginning. And my son, who's a very sweet spirit, my oldest, and he turns to me and says, Mom, you said this was a good story. I'm like, give it a minute. (laughs) It'll redeem itself. Well, next scene, they're offloading animals from the ship trying to get to the island, and sharks come. Sharks are swimming around, and he's like, Mom, (laughs) you said this was a good story. But of course it ends okay, and everything redeems itself. And later the pirates come, and he's like, Mom! I'm like, son, just wait to the end of the story before you make up your mind. And when we watch these kind of movies, inevitably at the end, he'll sit back and he's like, that was a good story. Except for Davy Crockett when they all died at the end. I don't think he's forgiven me for that one yet. (laughs) But you know what? God knows how to write. He really, really does. We see his, his handiwork all through the scripture and it is so amazing. But you know, his His writing doesn't end with the Bible because he's writing the story of our lives too. And I really love to think of my life as being written by God because when I do, I can really trace his hand through all the events of my life, both good and bad. And I can know that that's not all that there is. There's more to the story. As a kid, I was a really good kid when people were watching But down deep inside, I was malicious and devious to the core. Emily knows this. And I lived my life constantly afraid that somebody would see who I really was inside. And I remember even as a young child, I laid in my bed one night and I said, God, I'm tired of trying to be good. If it's all right by you, can I just wait till I'm a grown up to be good? (laughs) I was just tired of this fight. But by God's grace... He said, no, it's not all right by me. And it's not about being good. I want your heart. And through many of, excuse me, through many events, my parents, for example, had, had, God had put it on their heart to make sure that I wasn't just socialized and had friends, but that I had good relationships with godly kids. And they worked hard to provide that for me. And, and I ended up in a really great relationship. And it was through kids that were my age that were on fire for the Lord that really spurred me on as a, as a young person to get to know God better. But also during this time, there was a really sweet lady um, in my church who came alongside me and some of my friends. And she really showed us that following God isn't something you just arrive at one day. But it is a faithful putting one foot in front of the other, moment by moment, daily decision to follow the Lord that leads to a habitual obedience. And this is so important because, you know, even though I was young, God used these years as a monumental catalyst into a deep abiding walk with him. And they would prepare me for life's daily struggles 
and life's catastrophic pains. I tell my kids on a daily basis, well, maybe not daily, but regular basis, you are on one of two paths. One path is the path that is driven by the flesh to serve whatever natural inclination towards destruction that drives you. That could be selfishness, self-love, self-loathing, passion, pride, greed, whatever it is, all of these things gratify the flesh and they pull hard at us, but they leave us in a constant state of reactionary living. But there's another path, and that is the path of active faith. This is the willful choice to put God first and ourselves last. The choice to believe that he really is a good father and that he wants what is best for us. That is an active choice to believe that. And it makes a difference. So here we are in the climax of Esther, all the characters and the various plots, they're all coming together into what only God could have orchestrated. Last week, when you guys left off, you were in the middle of a two-day feast that Esther had prepared for Haman and the king. This feast... Am I still on? Okay, sorry. This feast is how Esther had been led by God to approach the king to reveal her secret ethnicity and to plead for her life and the life of her people that had been... put in danger by Haman's decree to kill all the Jews. So in this passage, we're going to see that God accomplishes incredible things through active faith, but it is also important to notice that he accomplishes his will in the life of those without faith as well. So the characters in this story are a perfect example. In them, we will see four character traits that lead to either their rise or fall we will see the difference between active faith versus reactive living. In chapter 6, we see the impact of Mordecai's active patience versus Haman's reactive pride. And in chapter 7, we see the difference between Esther's action of poise and the king's reaction of passion. So just like me, earlier on, Mordecai thought that he could take the easy road but God pricks his heart. And he begins to take the path of active faith when he refuses to pay honor to God's enemy, the the Amalekite, the Agagite, Haman. He is a sworn enemy of God, and he is a sworn enemy of God's people. And Haman says, no, I am one of God's people, and I will not bow down to you. So once he takes this stand, guys, things begin to happen. God begins to bless him with the fruits of faith, and one of these is patience. We've seen the patience of Mordecai as he daily faces this persecution of Haman and makes this decision to not do this. He risks everything with this choice, guys. This is not given, um, he's not giving honor to God's enemy. Um, But with one foot in front of the other, he obeys the Lord, and God grows his faith. But then in this chapter, we see another mark of his patience. How many of you forgot about the story back in chapter two where Mordecai uncovers this plot to kill the king? Well, the king forgot about it. The king forgot, and I don't know, maybe Mordecai didn't expect a reward because he was just a lowly Jew. Or maybe he did and he was hurt by it, but regardless, it doesn't change the fact that... um, that he actively trusts God even in the midst of that. He trusts God to get it right even when others get it wrong. And that's important because people are going to get it wrong. And you have to trust God that he's in the details. Because you know what the alternative is? The alternative is to live a life of worry and bitterness. And if you've been around Watermark at all, you may have heard the statement that, Worry is fearing that God is going to get things wrong. And bitterness is believing that he did. And bitterness is extremely dangerous, ladies. One of my dear friends who's been a missionary almost her entire life, her and her husband have been missionaries in Mexico. 
One day she was sitting there and she told me, she said, Amy, do you know what is the number one thing that we have seen that has barred women from a closer walk with Jesus is? I said, what? She said, it's bitterness. In all of our years, we have seen bitterness bar women from a closer walk with the Lord more than anything else. It's dangerous. So, um, sorry. But yeah, so Mordecai was passed over. He had every right to be bitter. He was passed over. He was belittled. He was threatened. He wasn't even where he really wanted to be. But he was marked by patience. And that can only come from a deep abiding trust that God is going to get it right. Have any of your good deeds ever gone unnoticed? Maybe you've been passed over for a promotion at work. Maybe several times. Or maybe, I don't know, you're a mom. (laughs) Thanklessness can be hurtful. And it can be discouraging. But there is more to the story. It doesn't end there. So let's find out. Here we are. We find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 6, right after the first day of Esther's feast. And the king can't sleep. Maybe it was the wine. Maybe it was God. God's sovereignty is seen throughout this story. And it is so exciting. So here in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, On the night the king could not sleep, he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles that they may be read before the king, because that will put you to sleep. And so they begin to read and they find that Mordecai uncovered this plot and they just happened to be in that section. And the king said, wait, 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 what, what did you just say? Well, what honor distinction was given Mordecai when this happened? And the young men reading said, well, it doesn't say anything. There's nothing recorded. I don't think we did anything for him. Well, this isn't Okay. This is not okay with the king because it is very important for the king as a good ruler to pay honor to those who honor him. It's how you maintain a good kingdom, folks. We blew it. So immediately in the wee hours of the morning, he turns to the guys and he says, who's in my court? I need an advisor right now. I need someone so that I can ask what we can do for this Mordecai. We've got to make this right. It's in the wee hours of the morning. I Nobody's going to, oh, wait, Haman's here. We don't know why, but he's here. (laughs) Well, Haman's there because God is at work, even in the wicked heart of Haman. Haman was in the court just then to ask if he could hang Mordecai. He's in for a big surprise. Last week... We saw Haman, just to give a little backstory for those of you who weren't here. Haman exits the feast and he is on cloud nine. Everything in his world could not be going better. He has favor in the king. Now he has favor with the queen. He has 10 sons that are making wealth for him. He has power. The Jews are going to die. Everything is going great. The man is practically skipping home, reciting all the greatness of his life to himself. And then he sees it. He sees Mordecai side of you. You just seize him. And all of a sudden, nothing else matters. All the blessings in his life, everything that he thinks is great, nothing matters because he sees Mordecai. And guys, this is what happens when pride drives our ship. Everything in life revolves around changing circumstances, what others think of me, how they treat me, how I think I should be treated. All of these things change. And it is devastating when they don't go your way. It is devastating when a coworker or your spouse or your kid speaks to you in a way you do not deserve. What is your action plan or what is your reaction? Do you calmly, gracefully address the issue all the while trusting God to work in their hearts? Or do you get in their face and let them know just who they're talking to? Or maybe you just think it. 
It's all wrong. What is your action plan? Or what is your reaction? There is great instability in the house of the proud. I'm going to say that again because I know it's personally true. There is great instability in the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 4, 5, 16, 4 and 5 says, The Lord has made everything with its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And be assured, he will not go unpunished. Now guys, I'm not going to lie, this part of the story gets me a little bit excited. There's a reason God says vengeance is mine, I will repay. He can do it better. He can do it better. Now, we're not supposed to be all vengeful and everything, but guys, there's times when there needs to be vengeance, and it is to be left to God because he is in the details and he knows how to do this right. So in chapter 6, verse 6 and following, listen what happens. So Haman came in and the king says, Haman, what should be done for the man who the king delights to honor? Haman says to himself, well, who would the king rather delight to honor than me? And Haman said, well, for the king, the man, for the man who the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought that the king has worn and a royal horse that the king has actually ridden on with a crown placed on the king's head on the horse's head and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble official and let him dress the man the king delights to honor and let him lead the man through the city square proclaiming thus it shall be done for the man who the king delights to honor and the king says i love it Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at my gate. Leave out nothing you have just said. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, guys. And then he stood on the horse and he led him through the square proclaiming, thus it shall be done for the man the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the gate. That was cool. (laughs) But Haman, Haman returns to the house mourning with his head covered. And as soon as he breaks through the door, he tells his wife and he tells his wise men what had happened. And they say to him, they said, look, if Mordecai, whom you have be- before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, we can see it now. You surely will fall before him. And then while they were speaking, the king's eunuchs came and took him away to the feast. What prophetic words from the, wa- ma- from the mouth of his wife. If this had happened in any other way, if he had been exonerated in a timely fashion like he deserved, he would have died that day. God is in the details. So here we are at the feast. And the king and Haman went to the feast with the queen. And on the second day, they're sitting around drinking wine. And the king says, what is your wish, sweet queen Esther? What is it? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. I love you. Here we come to the poise of Esther. While Mordecai and Esther had some shortcomings with openly practicing their faith earlier on, they still had faith. They had faith. And God, through his faithfulness, was growing it into a deep, abiding trust, as he does with us. Guys, to maintain poise in the face of catastrophe takes active faith. Esther actively sought the Lord through prayer and fasting. 
She prepared a plan. She didn't panic. Then she trusted God to get it right. And she put herself out there. Just like Mordecai, she risked everything. And let's see how it goes. In verse 3 of chapter 7, Then the queen answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would be silent before you. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. And King Ahasuerus says to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who dares to do this? And she said to him, it is a foe and enemy, my lord, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Not only was she outing herself, which was incredibly dangerous, but she was accusing the king's most trusted and noble official. And she was accusing the king of the crime of genocide. Kings don't commit crimes. They are gods. The reason a decree couldn't be reversed, a decree the king had made, was because he didn't make mistakes. You don't undo a law because that means he made a mistake. So she was saying, by the way, you've made several. She didn't just arrive at this kind of strength as I thought I would when I was young. This is a result of actively choosing to follow God. She learned to trust him on a daily basis. She's been there for four years and she has seen God's faithfulness in her life and how he has taken care of her. She wasn't perfect. No one is, but she was ready when it mattered. The same lady that came alongside me in high school had a daughter about nine years younger than me. I benefited so much from this lady's, uh, her faithfulness, her, um, her faithfulness and influence in my life. And I was blessed to later come alongside her daughter when she was in high school and mentor her much in the same way as she had done for me. I got married in June of 2007 And both of these women sang together at my wedding. It was such a blessing and such an honor. But then later in October of the same year, this same sweet girl who had such a dear relationship with was on her way home from an after-school event. And they lived in a rural area, and she fell asleep at the wheel. She drove off the road, and she hit a tree. When she didn't come home, her parents got in the car and went looking for her. They found her, guys. And when they found her, it was clear she would not make it. What was their action plan? Well, as they sat there waiting for help to arrive, they prayed with her and they sang hymns with her as they escorted her to the arms of the Lord. 16. Boys. Could you do that? I pray you could. I pray I could. I pray I never have to. A life of trusting, faithfully putting one foot in front of the other had prepared them for the unthinkable. Esther was facing the unthinkable and she did it with poise because of her faith. Now, on the other hand, what was the king's reaction? He was just told some very bad news. And in verse 7 we read, The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, and he went into the palace garden. But Haman, Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Yeah, 
Now, before I go into any character flaws of the king, I'm going to have to give the man some props for getting up and taking a breather. Guys, this is a really good idea. (laughs) Whenever you are hit with a fit of passion, rage, or whatever it may be, getting up and taking a breather. He had so much swimming around in his head. Wine, betrayal, shock, rage. There was so much going on. But what had gotten him? What had gotten him to this point? Throughout the whole story, we have seen him be a man that is driven by passion and desire. A passion for power, a passion for respect, a passion for women, a passion for control. This, or that was the path of destruction that drove him. But what is also important to note are the people that are around him. But what is, or it, so he consistently surrounded himself with advisors that would advise him to follow his passion and inclinations. How convenient. Or worse yet, they manipulated his passion and exploited it for their own benefit. In Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. It was his wicked advisors that fed his rage and encouraged him to get rid of Vashti. And then later on, Haman comes to him about this decree to kill the Jews, and he is vague. I don't know if you read that passage thoroughly, but he is vague in in the details. He doesn't even use use their name. He doesn't even say it's the Jews that he's talking about. He says it's some random scattered people that don't obey your laws. But he's very you know, pointed about letting the king know they don't obey your laws. He fed the passionate desire to be worshipped and obeyed and the passion for control that the king had. And he was counting on the king's reaction. So watch what happens when we come to verse 8 through 10. The king returned from the palace garden, the place where he, they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will even he assault my queen in my presence, in my house? And as the words left his mouth, everybody took their cue. They ran, grabbed Haman, and covered his head. Because it was a shame for anyone to look on the king when he wanted you dead. So they covered his head. And listen, this this is great. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, <clears throat> the gallows that Haman had prepared has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house about 50 cubits high, just over there. And the king says, perfect, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the king's wrath was abated. The eunuch Harbona evidently was one of the many who didn't like Haman. He knows just what to say to get a reaction out of the king who was already fully fired up with passion. The king didn't know he was going to hang Mordecai that day. But he knew just what to say to get a reaction out of the king. Guys, whatever your bent towards destruction may be, you are either reacting to life based on what is being dictated to you by your flesh, or you are going to act based on faith that is grounded in the light of God's word. You have two choices. But, but... It is also very important who is around you. This is another key factor. Like the king, do you surround yourself with friends who are going to stroke your feelers and tell you what you want to hear when you are in that state? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you should feel that way. Get them. Or do you put people in your life who you know are going to consistently take the hard road and point you back to the scripture? Say, I know you feel that way, but feelings aren't real. 
Our feelings are real, but they are not reliable, Amy. What does it say here? Let's go back to this. I understand you feel that way. But let's look at what God's word says. Who is around you matters. So now we move on to chapter 8. We see how God rewards the courageous acts of faith of these two faithful servants. And through them, he brings his people from the state of victim to victor. Galatians 6, 8 says, The one who sows to his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who reaps to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. One of my favorite theologians, Warren Wearsby, says this. He says, No good deed done for the glory of Jesus Christ will ever be forgotten before God. No loving word spoken in Jesus' name will ever be wasted. Even if we don't see the harvest in this life, we will see it when we stand before the Lord. Even a cup of cold water given in the name of Christ will have its just reward, as he references Matthew 10.42. Guys, this is not talking about random acts of kindness. Given in his name is a key phrase because Mordecai and Esther were people of faith from the beginning and that is why they found favor in so many places just as Joseph did when he was sold into Egypt and then he was imprisoned. Everywhere he ended up, he found favor and it was because of his faith and because of God's calling on his life. But just as, as he found favor, Mordecai and Esther did, and it wasn't until, but it wasn't until Esther and Mordecai stepped up and acted openly in the name of the Lord that God began to move mountains with their faith. Can you say from your heart, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also for the Greek. When God pricks your heart to be intentional with your actions of faith, you obey in the name of God. Seeds will be planted and things will begin to happen. So guess how God rewards this kind of faithfulness? He rewards it as he did with Esther and Mordecai by even greater responsibility. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day, the same day they hung Haman, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jew. Mordecai came before the king, and Esther told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring that he had just taken from Haman. He gave it to Mordecai and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. This is a huge responsibility. Mordecai is now the equivalent of the prime minister. This was a reward from God, but it is a reward that is a tool. So on the same day that Haman is hung, Esther identifies Mordecai as her uncle. (laughs) the king cannot help but see the hand of God in the fact that Mordecai has been the theme of his last 24 hours. He can't sleep. And he thinks of Mordecai. So he wakes up and he honors Mordecai. And then he finds out his most trusted advisor was going to hang Mordecai. And now Mordecai is the uncle of his beloved queen. So he takes his cue from God And he gives Mordecai Haman's role. He gives him the signet ring and Esther sets him over the estate. Now this is key because this is not just a beautiful house on a hill, which would be nice. We're not going to lie. But this is vast amounts of land. This is wealth. And they are going to use it to fund their rescue plan. The irony here is that Haman wanted to kill the Jews and take their land. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. 
God is serious about his promises. Not only did Haman lose everything, but God uses every aspect of what he lost as a means of blessing his people. We call it irony, but it's not. It's God's sovereignty. Now, I don't know if the king was just tired of everything, if he was overwhelmed, but he, he turns to leave. But Esther's not quite finished. But when the king makes a move that it's over, it's over. Like the conversation has ended. I'm done. But Esther wasn't satisfied. In verse three, it says, then Esther spoke to him. And I don't know if she chased him out of the door. It's not clear. Or if she followed him into his throne room or, or, or what happened. But the conversation had ended and she has to reapproach him. And we know what that means. You do not go before the king, even if he had just turned around, his, turned his back on you. You don't approach him without being summoned. But she does anyway because it is important. And she tells him and she says, King, she fell at his feet and she wept and she pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, the plot that he had devised against the Jews. This was the riskiest move yet, guys. She had pushed the limits in every way. He was tired and he was done with the subject. And even if he wanted to change it, he couldn't. It was done. But the king held out his golden scepter to Esther. And Esther rose and she stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, if things seem right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, please let an order be, re- re- please re- ugh, an order be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming my people? And how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? The odds were against her in every way. And yet the king extends mercy yet again. Esther interceded at the throne of the king on behalf of her people. Last week, in women's Bible study, in the Esther, I'm sorry, in the Exodus study, at Watermark, we saw Moses go up onto a mountain with God for 40 days. And this is directly after God had made a covenant with his people in which his people promised and vowed that to follow the ways of the Lord forever and do everything to the letter that he had said. Well, guess what? When Moses comes down from the mountain, he found that the people had made a golden calf to replace God. God's wrath... God's wrath was akin to that of a groom who had just gotten married and had to leave suddenly. And he was gone for 40 days. And when he comes back, he finds his wife in bed with a prostitute. That's how cheap what they did was. He was angry. He was so angry, he wanted to wipe them out. But Moses intercedes. He steps in and he says, God, if possible, I will take every ounce of your wrath on me for their sake. Of course, he can't do that. Only Christ could do that. But because of his heart to intercede for his people, God's wrath relents. Esther interceded for her people. She wasn't offering to atone for a sin of her people, but she still risked her life to intercede for them, to intercede on their behalf. Guys, does your faith push you to intercede for people in your life? And if so, how much are you willing to risk? Are you willing to risk your name or your reputation Or that awkward moment when you see your neighbor in the street checking their mail? Like, how much are you willing to risk for the name of the Lord? 
Centuries later, Paul wrote in Romans 9, 1 through 3, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers to know him and my kinsmen according to my flesh to know the Lord. He's willing to trade his salvation for his people to know who God is, really. Intercession. Esther interceded. Well, in verse 7, the king said to the queen, he says, I have given you everything. I have given Esther the house of Haman, and I've hanged him on the gallows because he intended to harm the Jews. But you, you may write, you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring because anything that is sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So the king, his heart was softened towards her. He didn't banish her or kill her. God softened his heart. But he couldn't grant her the one thing she wished. And that was just to undo the decree. But at this point, the king's not going to sit around and help them problem solve. That's not his job. So he passes the problem on to Mordecai and Esther. But he doesn't just pass it on and wish for the best. He equips them with everything that they would need, down to the, the finest lawyers of the land, to the, all the, the, the politicians and everybody who's going to help this come together in the perfect way. He gives them legal advice, everything. He gives Mordecai the robes and the signet ring and the position. They are fully equipped. And he trusts Mordecai to make it right. Now, what is the solution that they came up with. Their solution is to make another decree. This decree will allow the Jews who are in every city to gather, this is in verse 11, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people who pro, uh, of, or province that might attack them, children and women included, and plunder their goods. This new decree allows the Jews to defend themselves against the first decree's repercussions by attacking anyone who threatens. This is a great idea. Now, scholars don't all agree on the translation of verse 11. Some translations connect the women and children to the Jews. Whereas here it sounds like anyone who attacks you, you can kill them and all their kids and wives and whatever. But the way it reads in other translations um, is that you may kill anyone of any province that might attack you, your women and children included, and to plunder their goods. I don't know. The first option is very weighty, and it makes them think twice. The second option, well, I don't know. I prefer the second option. <laughs> but I don't know what God was doing, but that's just, that's just how it is. But there is a discrepancy there, and, but it doesn't really matter because it is what it is. So where does this story end? Where does this part of this story end? In verses 16 through 17, it says the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor in every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his edicts reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The book of Esther opens with the Jews taking a low profile. So much so that Esther and Mordecai couldn't even say, that they were Jews. But now the Jews are proud of their race. The Jews are so happy with what God has done that they're attracting people to their faith. Pagan Gentiles could see that God was caring for his people, and who doesn't want that? A God who's going to care for you and stand up for you? There's a funny story, a semi-funny story, 
um, after President Ronald Reagan was shot. That's why it's semi-funny. When he was being prepared for surgery, he jokingly said to the medical team, I hope all of you are Republicans. One of the doctors replied, Mr. President, today all of us are Republicans. That was the attitude of the people of Persia when Mordecai's edict was published. Today, we're all Jews. We're on your side. You might say, yeah, that's a great story. But how does it really apply to me? Because, I'm sorry, Amy, but I can't keep visions from Aladdin from my mind. There's blue and white robes. There's an evil, sinister advisor. There's a beautiful princess and a poor guy who's risen to power. And my life looks anything like a Disney movie. So how can I step out in an act of faith and really trust God that he's going to get it right in real life? Is he really with me? Is he really for me? Girls, when your daddy asked you to trust him, Priscilla Shire says, you need to ask yourself, who's your daddy? You may have heard this quote before, but she very eloquently explains just who our daddy is. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the keeper of creation, the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all time. He always was, always is, and always will be unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and never undone. He was he was buried for our, and brought healing. He was pierced to ease pain. He was persecuted but brought freedom. He was dead and brings life. He has risen to bring power and he reigns to bring peace. The world can't understand him. Armies can't defeat him. Schools can't explain him. And leaders, they can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. Nero couldn't crush him. The new age cannot replace him. And Oprah cannot explain him away. He is light, he is love, he is longevity, and he is the Lord. He is goodness and kindness and faithfulness, and he is God. He is holy and righteous and powerful and pure. He, his ways are right, his word eternal, his will unchanging, his mind is on us. He's our savior, our guide, our peace, our joy our comfort, our Lord, and he rules our lives. I serve him because his bond is love, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, his glory, or his goal for us is abundant life. I follow him because he is with the wisdom of the wise, the power of the powerful, the ancient of days, the ruler of rulers, the leader of leaders. His goal is a relationship with me. He'll never leave you. He will never forsake you, never mislead you, never forget you, never overlook you, and never cancel your appointment in his appointment book. Never. When you fall, he lifts you up. When you fail, he will forgive you. When you are weak, he is strong. When you are lost, he's your way. When you are blind, he will guide you. When you're afraid, he will be your courage. When you stumble, he will steady you. When you are hurt, he's going to heal you. When you are broken, he will mend you. When you are blind, he will lead you. When you are hungry, he will feed you. When you face trials, he is with you. When I face persecution, he shields me. When I face problems, he will comfort me. When I face loss, he will provide for me. And when I face death, he will carry all of us home to meet him. Guys, he is everything for everybody, everywhere, every time, and in every way. He is your God. He's your daddy. And sisters, belong to him.
He will not lead you astray. You can trust him. Act in faith and watch him move mountains. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is good. It is rich. It is honey for the soul. And when we look into it and we see who you are and that you stand up for your people and you keep your promises and that you use those who step out in faith in your name to move mountains and make amazing things happen. It is exciting to say the least. It is inspiring. And Father, wherever we have been, wherever any of the women in this room have been, wherever I have been today, I pray that every moment would be that moment when we decide to make the decision to follow the path of active faith, to follow your word, to turn to the friends around us who are the ones who point us back to who you are. And that we would get off of the path of destruction of the flesh so that we can stop of act the, the, the reactive living and start living for something. Thank you, Jesus, that we live on this side of the cross and that we can come before your throne and be forgiven fully and that we can take that opportunity and run with it. Everyone in this room was born into this time for your purpose and you have a very special plan for her life. And I pray, Lord, that she would invest in active faith and active trusting that you may grow the fruits of righteousness in her life, that you may accomplish great things with her. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.